Our scripture is found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. It is on the screen if you want to follow along and don't have your Bible this morning. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Please remain standing and join me in prayer. Dear God, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful that you give it to us, that you give uh, Pastor Kyle the, um, just the Holy Spirit to speak through him. God, I pray this morning that you would uh, be bold, that you would uh, just work on us and help it to be a, a beneficial morning. God, I pray that we would uh, just hear you, God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Thank you. It's so good to be here this morning. Adam was in a deep sleep on his wedding night. Come on. Wake up, man. <laughs> it's so good to be here this morning. We're going through the book of Genesis. And we're, uh, we've titled this series, uh, In the Beginning, um, based on the very first verse of Genesis, In the Beginning God Created the Heavens and the Earth. Uh, the book of Genesis is more than just a book of origins. It's a, it's a stated purpose. It explains why God made us, why God saved us, and it gives us encouragement and hope for the future. We all live in a, our lives are kind of like a home, and... When your house is a mess, you're a mess. When your house is nice and neat, we tend to be maybe a little better off emotionally. Without Jesus, um, all the windows are shut. We can't see past the end of our our own nose. So being a Christian means that we live in a house with windows. It means that when things are messy, um, when things aren't going right, we can see past it. We can see out the window, so to speak, beyond to a greater purpose. And that's why we're um, really going through the book of Genesis, because it really explains what it means to be a Christian and explains why we have a hope um, for eternal life. So that's, that's kind of like the general reason why we're approaching this. And um, some of you might have heard of the famous American artist Jackson Pollock. Have you heard of him? Right. Um, he was really well known for his abstract art, you know, you got to kind of interpret what you think it means. He did these drip paintings. It's actually one of them is posted right up there. Um, he did uh, drip paintings, abstract art, different things like this. His paint, that's on the screen, is his painting number five. That painting 
believe it or not, is the fourth most valuable painting in the world, and it's worth $140 million. He beat out Picasso, Klimt, Vincent van Gogh, Renoir, all these greats are behind him considerably in value and estimated worth of his art. Unreal. Now, I'm not an art um, connoisseur. I think it looks pretty cool. I don't really get why it's worth what it's worth. I'm sure art buffs understand it, uh, maybe a little bit more than me, but that's what it's worth. Um, in December of 2015, in Sun City, Arizona, really hot, uh, there was an elderly woman who was getting to the point where she needed to live like in a nursing home senior center, so she's cleaning out her house, and she has a neighbor helping her, assisting her in her move. Um, he finds, for all of you basketball fans out there, he finds in her dirty, dusty, musty garage a signed poster of Kobe Bryant um, as a rookie. Now, this guy is thrilled. <laughs> he finds this gem covered under a pile of dust. He decides <clears throat> to have the authenticity verified and the poster valued. He wanted to make sure it was real, and he wanted to see how much it was worth. So he calls a company. They come into the garage, <clears throat> and in their observation of this Kobe Bryant um, poster, they find something in the garage, buried under a pile of junk, damaged by heat, moisture, and smoke, that is worth far more than the Kobe Bryant poster. They found a lost Jackson Pollock painting. It wasn't that one, but it was a lost Jackson Pollock painting. The guy who was in the garage knew what he was holding. And he realized this has got to be worth a lot of money. In spite of the heat damage, the moisture damage, and the smoke damage, they estimated the painting at $15 million. And then she died the next day. <laughs> that's, I don't know if that, that's true. <laughs> so here's this kind elderly woman, completely unaware of what she had. She stuffed this painting, who knows where she got it from, in her dirty garage, under a pile of junk, and exposed it to her or someone else's secondhand smoke. <laughs> and that's not uncommon, is it? There are times in life where maybe you have realized you were sitting on something more valuable than you thought. And if you had realized it sooner, you might have taken better care of it, right? When we devalue something, or maybe we're just ignorant of its value, we're going to treat it with less care. I'm sure if she knew that that painting was worth $15 million, she would make a phone call and ask, how do I protect this? What kind of light and moisture needs to be in the room? Should I put some glass in front of it, right? Like, we would all do that. I'd probably sell it immediately, because whatever. If it's a painting, give me the money. Um, it's almost like that field owner in the New Testament who's got a treasure buried in his own field, and he doesn't realize it. And he sells the field for the price of the field, not for the price of the treasure. See? Oh, how discouraged and just train wrecked we could feel if we realized one day that was us. We had something valuable and we sold it for a dime. Now, some of you might know, not know this about me. But I was a youth pastor for five years, um, and I primarily worked with teenagers. 
So I think we might have some teenagers in the room that remember that about me because I think you went to the church that um, I was a youth pastor in. Uh, we did a series at the time on relationships, and we spent a lot of time talking about purity, physical purity and sexual purity and whatnot. And one thing I remember uh, telling them was this basic idea of to mean in, in your physical relationship with other members of the opposite sex, to mean more with less, right? Mean more with less. And the idea basically is this, that hand-holding, for example, should mean more than what we mean by it. A lot of times we mean, I kind of like you, right? That's what that is a symbol of. I kind of like you. I think you're cute, right? Maybe I like your hands. I don't know, right? We <laughs> Maybe it's a symbol of we're dating now. Like, this is my girlfriend, so, not, so now we hold hands. But shouldn't it mean more than that? Shouldn't it mean more like I'm, more, I'm committed to you? Maybe even I'm, I'm going to marry this person, right? Maybe hand-holding should be reserved for engagement. Now, I don't know. I'm not going to set laws. So I'm not going to try to define um, how much hand-holding should mean. We could debate it. Um, we could say it should mean more than what we actually mean with it. But my point is that physical signs of affection mean much, much less in our day and age than they used to. Shouldn't a kiss mean I love you? Shouldn't sex mean till death do us part? You see, now it's uh, how are you? My name's Kyle. <laughs> That's what it means now. If you give away every single physical expression to your partner prior to marriage, what's left after marriage to communicate undying, unconditional f love for that person as long as you both shall live? Now, I know, right, I, I need to stop. I'm going to say this again at the end. I need to stop right here. I know we've fallen in this. I've fallen in this. I'm not here to give you a hard time to make you feel like a scumbag. Because God in Christ forgives us of all of our sins. They are all gone away. But today's a new day. What wasn't valuable yesterday can be valuable today. Amen? So don't feel guilty. Don't feel shame. It's gone. And God can give you a new start this moment. Today's a new day. The value of the romantic touch, nevertheless, has come to mean less and less. Um, because we either scorn or are ignorant of its purpose. We really don't know why we're doing these things. We know it expresses some kind of affection or attraction. We sell the field, forgetting about the treasure in the field. Now, last week we talked about the purpose of marriage, which was sanctifying friendship. Friendship is basically a Greek word for love um, in the New Testament called philos. And we described it as two people standing side by side looking in the, at the same ob object. We're, they're going in the same direction. They're assisting each other towards the same horizon. And for the Christian, that horizon is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We're forming each other in marriage to look more and more like Christ so that when he comes, we are presented without spot and wrinkle. Amen? That's the purpose of marriage. Okay? Um, that kind of love is in distinction, we said, from eros love. Right? This is a sensual love or an erotic love. It pictures two people fa not facing the same horizon, but facing each other. Now, if you were here last week, you might have gotten this maybe unintended message that I was trying to say that that was wrong. 
but it's not, and we'll get into that, okay? <clears throat> that kind of love is the love where we see Adam and Eve naked in each other's presence, yet unashamed, right? They're looking at each other, delighting in each other, unashamed and selfless love for each other. Now, we've talked about the power of marriage in the past, which is selflessness, the definition of marriage, which is a covenant, the priority of marriage, um, the man shall leave his home. The most important relationship that you have as a married person is not, fi- is not parents or children or friends. It is your spouse. That's the priority. The purpose of marriage, sanctifying friendship. And this morning, I want to discuss the intimate union of marriage. So you picked the right Sunday to come to. Okay? I want to talk about the purpose, meaning, and value of marital intimacy. Okay? Sexual union between husband and wife is a creation ordinance. Now, that's a theological term that some of us might not be familiar with, but that means that God ordained this when he created the heavens and the earth. It's, so, in other words, because of this, it is part of our DNA, so to speak. It's not something that we created in the, the prosozeric, whatever it's called, error, right? It's not... Uh, an evolutionary function that someday is just going to kind of fall off of us. It's something that God created as a creation ordinance, and therefore, as long as man walks the earth and woman walks the earth, it will be part of who we are. As God made the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night, we read this in Scripture and in the Psalms, as he, he made us, humanity, his own image, that's, that's a creation ordinance. Man and woman to keep and care for the garden, right, and the earth, to be governors, to rule, or, rule over the earth. The, the fowl, right, ruling over the air. The fish ruling over the sea. As, as some have said, as it was in the beginning, so it ever shall be. God created man and woman to enter into marriage and secu- sexual union. That is one of the purposes of his creation of man and woman. Why? Why did he do this? What's the purpose of intimacy in marriage? And why does God expect us to be married to do this? Dogs and cats don't need to get married. Monkeys and fish and insects don't need to get married. They can join themselves with whomever they like, how frequently they would like. Love, love and marriage is not the basis for them, why should it be for us? These are good questions, right? Some of, some of you are saying, yeah, I agree, and you're going to leave before, <laughs> before I answer it. <clears throat> Many in our society have reduced its meaning and purpose, I think, to either simple pleasure or uh, an expression of some kind of affection or love. And it's as simple as that. That's what we've reduced it to. So easily... This, I think, can be demonstrated in the booming billion-dollar porn industry. Multiple sexual partners, adulteries, divorce, and all the like. Perhaps in the back of our minds, maybe we see sexuality as accomplishing more than something that's simply fun, but we still have reduced it to something less than the sanctity that it requires. We can reduce its purpose simply to fun or, if we're honest, even if we think 
we, if we have faith and nothing in ourselves, we know that we have to know that it means more than that, right? We all know instinctually, even if we don't have faith in God or Christ or anything, that human sexual intimacy is more for just fun. <laughs> we kind of know that. It's in our gut. And that's why it's a creation ordinance again. The way we define the purpose of it will determine our reverence for it. If there's a high purpose, you're going to protect it. If there's a low purpose, you're going to sell it to the, to the highest bidder. If, intima if intimacy is something that's just for fun, you're going to do it a lot with whomever you please. If it's like, eating ice, it's like eating ice cream or playing a video game, right? Chocolate, vanilla, strawberry, Haagen-Dazs, Ben and Jerry's, whatever. We kind of treat it like that. It's just something that brings me enjoyment. So just participate on a whim. If it's something, maybe it's perhaps more than that, more than simply fun, but maybe you, you would say, no, it's not just about that. You have to love the person. So you, you might be a little bit more conservative, but still not marriage. Marriage, that's regressive, that's archaic, that's kind of like a relic from the past. So what's the purpose then? We've got to talk about this. We have to understand why the Bible tells us for a man and a woman to be joined in marriage before they're to be intimate with each other physically. So let's look at the purpose. In Scripture, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see this, and the first purpose is procreation. It is the means by which human beings are fruitful and multiply. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And he says to them, he blesses them, he says, be fruitful and increase in number. There's only one way to do that. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds. So there's a lot of stated purposes for man and woman, not just procreation. They're to rule over God's creation, to care for his earth. But one thing is that they're to be fruitful and multiply, to bear children. God's command to man and woman is to multiply, to procreate. We're God's image bearers. Remember, God created mankind in his image. We're like him. Well, what is God like? God is creator. If God is creator, then he has made us to procreate, to be like him, to imitate him. There is something not there that now is there. That is the fruit of our offspring. The way in which God has designed us to procreate is through intimacy, but not just intimacy, marital intimacy. That's why you see Adam and Eve in a covenant getting married. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is actually a wedding, if you understand ancient Near Eastern literature. He is marrying her before he is fruitful and multiplies with her. Okay. So in order to obey this command, Adam needs a suitable helper. Right? We see this in Genesis chapter 2. A suitable helper. Adam can't have children on his own. He's not an orca whale or whatever animal can do that. Right? Um, so he needs a suitable helper. So the Lord God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep and from his rib creates Eve, whom he later would become one flesh with. So by this, Adam was able to obey God's command the creation ordinance to be fruitful and to multiply do you see so god part of god's stated purpose for creating man and woman 
and marriage and intimacy is to bear fruit, right, to procreate. So then, one, pur- one purpose, as I said, is procreation. Now, there was a guy named Origen. He lived in about 184. So he's like almost rubbing elbows with the apostles. He's, no, he's known as an early church father for obvious reasons. Um, early Christian theo- theologian, pastor of a city called Alexandria, a very well-known and prominent church, still respected to this day by Protestants and Roman Catholic- Catholics, for just his brilliant mind, his devotion to Christ, and his pastoral care of his church. Now, Origen claimed that the only purpose of marital intimacy was procreation. Now, just let that sink in. Think about the implications of that. The only reason a man and woman should join together, even in marriage, is to have children. This is what Origen said. He would never suggest you could do this outside of marriage, but even in marriage, your only motivation is kids. Okay? Now, he's wrong. (laughs) So stop sweating, right? But because of this, I don't know if you know this or not, but the Roman Catholic Church in 1968 rejected all forms of artificial birth control. So it was a sin for a Roman Catholic to use birth control. And why is that? Because if you agree with Origen, you're defeating the purpose of the function of of intimacy in marriage. Does that make sense? You're obviously doing it for other reasons at that point. Right? Why do you think our Roman Catholic grandparents had 15 children? (laughs) That was one of the reasons. Now, I respectfully disagree with Origen. I do think that there are other purposes for, for this. But one purpose is procreation. We can't get around that. It's very clear. Number two, um, what if you can't have children, though? Does that mean you just kind of hang out with your buddy? You know? That you're ma- that's what your marriage is? You don't do this? Well, no. Because the second stated purpose of marital intimacy, we can call it communication. It's communication. We could also refer to it as fellowship, friendship, or intimacy. Listen to the Song of Solomon, chapter 2. His left, this gets spicy, I'm just going to warn you, okay? His, his left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. He doesn't say, do not have children in an inappropriate time. He doesn't say that. He says, do not arouse or awaken love. Now, the clear context of this, in case you missed it, now I'm not, I'm not poetic genius here, but I can figure out what's going on. He is saying that in order to participate in this kind of marital intimacy, it needs to be done in the right time. Don't awaken it before it's right time. The implication is that you need to be married before you can engage in in this kind of love, right? Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. So this kind of a steamy and poetic expression of marital intimacy in the Song of Solomon, and maybe not what you would expect from the Bible, but there it is. What's clear from this passage is that childbearing and procreation are well off the radar in these two 
lovers' minds. Okay? He says, do not awaken love before its time. The purpose, then, is to communicate love to the other person. See? It's to communicate love. Now, the word love is not some kind of euphemism. He's not talking about something else. He's talking about an expression of affection for another person. So it's not a euphemism. It's stating the purpose and the timing of marital physical intimacy to express love. Now, the word for love, we, we've kind of go, gone over this a little bit. The Old Testament, if you didn't know this, is written in Hebrew, right? It's written in Hebrew. It's not written in, written in Greek like the New Testament. The New Testament, like, like Hebrew, the, um, like Greek like Hebrew, has many different words for love. Now, what's interesting is that there was a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament around Jesus' time that people were using. If you didn't know this, Alexander the Great and around the 300s B.C. pretty much conquered all of Western Europe. And he started making everyone speak Greek. He had, they called it Hellenizing. So everyone spoke Greek in Western Europe and the Middle East. It was just part of almost like everyone speaks English in the world. Back then, Greek was the language. It was the common language. Hellenistic Greek. So what they did was they translated the, old, the Hebrew Old Testament for Jewish, faithful Jewish people that didn't know how to speak Hebrew because they only could speak Greek. So they translated the Old Testament into Greek and they call that the Septuagint. Now this was such a great translation that Jesus and the apostles and many others actually used this that you can see the Old Testament being quoted in the New Testament not from the Hebrew text but from the Septuagint. Does that make sense? So here's the, 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 um, the translation, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of this text, do not arouse or awaken love. What Greek, word did, Greek words have we talked about so far? Well, we've talked about philos love. Do not arouse or awaken philos love. Nope, that's not what they use. How about eros? It's got to be eros, right? That's that physical kind of sensual love. Do not awaken eros love. Nope. The, 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 the Greek translators, the Hebrew translators, use the Greek word agape. Agape, if you don't know, is God's love. It's a God love. You know what that tells me? That the translators understood this to mean that you are not to be physically intimate outside of a divine covenantal relationship. Right? Do not arouse or awaken love before its time. Sexual union and intimacy, we're going to get, this, get to this more in a second, is about expressing a lifelong commitment of divine, unconditional love to another person. And what Solomon is saying is, make sure that before you sign the contract, that you, there actually is one. <laughs> right? That's what he's saying. Amazing. The agape covenantal love do not arouse. Fascinating and surprising, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't mean to go back to this kind of rated R statement. His left arm is under my head. His right arm embraces me. Now, I'm not a brilliant man, but if it's under her head and not behind it, I can kind of imagine the position they're in. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be crass here, but what I'm saying is they're clearly 
in marital union here. They're clearly having a sensual experience with each other. And he says, don't arouse or awaken divine love before its time. That's fascinating. That tells me that what they're doing is being done in the presence of God. It's, done, it's being done for the purpose of expressing that kind of committed love to each other. It's not just about procreation. It's about the expression of unconditional love. Do you see that? <clears throat> and you cannot do that, and you should not do that, unless you are actually covenanting to marriage with the person. That's what it's intended to d- depict, to illustrate. That's the purpose of it. And it is devastating to participate in a, se- in a sexual relationship outside of marriage. And if you've done that, right, and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to be hard on you, but w- I think we know in our experience that when we've done this, it has wrecked us because spiritually we've married them, but we haven't actually. So when it doesn't work out and they move on to the next person, it's almost like you just got a divorce. Why do you feel like that? Why does that happen emotionally and spiritually? Well, it's because it's a creation ordinance. God meant this to depict marriage, not to depict fun. Right? It's to communicate undying love, not to communicate, I think you're cute. Or even I like you. Or I'm attracted to you. Unconditional and exclusive committed love till death do us part. That's what it's for. It's what it's supposed to communicate to the other person. Now what happens, right, like I said, if you can't have kids? Should you not be intimate with your husband or wife? Of course not. Because it was created by God for more than this. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. For what reason is a man to be physically and intimately united to his wife and leaving his parents. It's to create a new and binding union, separate and more important from the prior relationship. Do you see that? that? This is why you shall leave your home, your father and your mother. So the purpose of the, and be joined to the, your wife, the purpose is to create a new family. That's what God is explaining is the purpose of marriage and sexual union. A man and a woman were created to be united to God in a love exchange and to no other created thing. God's imitator is to be joined only to his wife and by this, or, or, or husband, and by this we imitate the same love and devotion that God has to us. Isn't that incredible? Now some of you are thinking, man, I came on the wrong Sunday. Um, or maybe you're thinking, man, I came on the right Sunday. <laughs> But here, isn't this incredible? Procreation, communication, number three, recreation. I wonder, I wonder how Pat's going to put this online. Because <laughs> you usually summarize the sermon <laughs> when you put up the pictures. Just, just say, good message, Kyle. That was a good message. <laughs> number three, recreation. Now, this might seem a bit off to you. Certainly, this was not on Origins. Um, wavelength here, but God did create marital intimacy to be enjoyed, to be pleasurable, and it's okay if that's <clears throat> if that happens. Consider with me Proverbs chapter five: Drink water 
from your own cistern. Now, there's, there's some poetic imagery being used here, so try to use your imagination. I'm not going to explain it, okay? Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. He's talking to two married people. Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. So what is God's, what is he explaining here about, the, about sexual union? You're supposed to do it with one person and only that person for the rest of your life. You say, oh, that, come on. Well, you're only looking at it from the perspective of sin. If you look at, from, look at it from the perspective of redemption, this is marvelous. But he says, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her body satisfy you always, and may you ever be intoxicated with her love. Now, this is really getting graphic. And by the way, I changed some of the words because there are kids in the room. Okay? But this is incredible what he's saying here. Rejoice in her. Be intoxicated with her. In other words, enjoy the process. So there is a, a recreation, a, a, a pleasure that's okay, that, that is part of the purpose of, of God's creating this. Also, it says, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my, is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in its shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Strengthen me with raisins. Refresh me with apples. She's faint from experiencing this with her husband. Strengthen me with raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm, this is what we re referred to before, his left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. Chapter 7, how beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm and your, your body like clusters of fruits. <clears throat> I said, oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> this is the Bible. Get mad at God. I said I will climb the tree and <laughs> just go home and read it. <laughs> this gets really spicy. The point here is they're having fun. This is enjoyable, and that's okay. It's not just for procreation. It's getting hot in here. Open a window. <clears throat> if you isolate any one of these, if it's just about procreation, if it's just about communication, if it's just about rec recreation, you demean and devalue and pervert the purpose and meaning of sex. So while God in, uh, uh, intentionally, intentionally created intimacy to be enjoyed, it's not the sole purpose. These things sort of come together and culminate, and I think what is the final purpose, the ultimate purpose, number four, invocation. Invocation. Now, if you don't know what an invocation, that's kind of a high holy word, right? And uh, if you went to more of a high church, you might know what an invocation is. An invocation is a, is a calling on God of sorts for his help, right? It's invoking his favor. He's saying, God, I need your attention. Would you bless me? That's what an, an invocation is. What I'm suggesting here is that marital intimacy is invoking God's favor. It's 
asking for his blessing. Let me explain to you the significance and power of this. Intimacy is meant to invoke God to hold you accountable to the standard that you're depicting in the act. That is, you are one with the person. You're saying, God, let me be always one with my spouse as this physical action imitate or, or images, see? <clears throat> now, if you remember, we defined marriage as a covenant. Remember, we did this a while back. Let me just review a little bit. Sexual union is the covenant ratifying and renewing oath sign. Now, if you're kind of new, you might be a little bit lost right here. So let me review a little bit. A covenant in the Old Testament is a, it's, it's almost like a more important contract. It's a family-like relationship of obligation established under God's sanction, divine sanction. In other words, in his presence, may you hold me accountable, God, if I break this. When I break a contract with you, who am I accountable to? The state. Right? I can get sued. I could go to jail. But if I break a covenant in scripture, I'm accountable to God himself. Now, <clears throat> that's what a covenant is. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's always when two people are coming into covenant with each other, or if one person is coming into covenant with God, there's always some kind of symbolic ritual associated with that covenant. It's called a covenant ratifying oath, okay? It's, a, it's called a covenant ratifying oath. The covenant ratifying oath is a symbol of what will happen to me if I break the covenant. Or it's a symbol of the blessing that will be granted to me if I keep the covenant. Right? It's symbolic. And let me give you an example. Genesis chapter 15. <clears throat> Abraham, um, God is making a covenant with Abraham. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham, Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer. He's making a covenant. I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to live in this land with you, Abraham, and I will be your God, and I will bless your people, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I'm making a covenant. Abraham says, well, prove it. How, how do I know you're going to do this? Okay, he says, bring me a heifer. Here's the covenant ratifying oath. A goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Now, this gets violent. So Abraham brought all these to him, cuts them in two, and arranges the halves opposite of each other. The, the birds, however, he did not come in half, cut in half. They're too small. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but a Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep like Adam. And as the story continues, God, while he's sleeping, goes through these pieces. Now, what's happening here? This seems like, what the heck? What's going on? Right, right. What's happening here is God is saying to Abraham, may I be cut in two like these pieces, if I don't keep this promise to you. He's asleep because Abraham has nothing to do with it. He's got nothing to do with whether or not God will be faithful. So he puts him to sleep. He goes through by himself. So he's, it's basically saying, Abraham, even if you're a bonehead, even if you, even if you sin and fall, I'm still going to be faithful to this. It's going to happen. Okay? So that's the covenant ratifying oath. It depicts what is... What will, what will happen to the person if they break it, right? That's what's happening here. Now, it also depicts the blessing. We see this in the Old Testament book, 
Genesis that we're in in chapter 24. Abraham and Eleazar make a covenant with each other, and they put, he, put, he puts his hand under his thigh to depict um, the fruitful offspring of the covenant that's being made, right? It's just a symbol. So sexual union, now if marriage is a covenant, what's the ratifying oath? What's the symbol? What's the, what's the animal cut in two? Well, it's sexual union. The Bible says when you participate in marital intimacy, you are invoking God to hold you accountable to be one. That's the physical image of sexual union, right? To be one, committed to that person for as long as you both shall live. And if you don't, there is a spiritual consequence, right? So it depicts the union that is a spiritual union that happens when you marry the person. So the blessing is physical and soul union, symbolized in physical union, okay? Now this is incredible because all of this, now we've said before that marriage is just an analogy. Marriage is an analogy. Even what Abraham did with the Lord, all of that is an analogy. Because the covenant ratifying oath for us is Jesus Christ. All of this depicts the one who would be broken and torn and bloodied and beaten because we broke the covenant and he took the curse. You see, all of those pigeons and all of those animals and all of this stuff, what, why is this happening? Why is this, this needless death happening? Well, it's because God is telling us that death is the consequence of sin and something needs to die for you if you're going to be joined to spiritual union with God, spiritual marriage with God. Marriage, human marriage, is an analogy of divine marriage. The oneness and unity that we'll have with God in heaven. Isn't that incredible? Do you see now the value, the importance of human marriage and physical intimacy in marriage? This is not just a fun thing to do. It's not something that, well, I, you know, what can I get out of it? There are some high implications. If all of this is true, there are some high implications to this. And the first one is that intimate union is a stated covenant and initiates marriage. This is, I kind of said this before. When you are intimate with a person, if you do not technically marry them, you spiritually do. You say, no, I didn't marry them. But if you're intimate with them, according to the Bible, you have just signed the contract. That's what it is. You've just signed the contract. And to walk away from that is like divorcing the person. And that's why it's so devastating when it happens. Often in Scripture, idolatry, did you know this? Worshiping another god. God says, worship only me. But, and he says, don't worship other gods. Idolatry is likened to adultery. Did you know that? That's what Hosea is all about, the Old Testament book of Hosea. <clears throat> you are marrying or one with another God by worshiping that God, right? And that's symbolized in adulterous sexual union. So it tells us that, that, that sexual union both initiates and presumes a covenant with the other person. That's why God says, 
don't be joined to another god. Worship only me. And he says, it's like you're committing adultery if you do that. I am one with you and only you. It's not possible to be one with you and someone else. That's the point. So to participate in sexual intimacy in Scripture is to get married. It's to be married. In the Old Testament law, if two people, by the way, who were not covenantally married legally, they were bound by the law to be married if they had premarital sexual relations. Did you know that? The only way that they could get out of it is if the dad said, no, <laughs> I'm not taking the, the price. Right? So he could, get, he could get his daughter out of it. Number two, this, the second implication. If this is a covenant oath sign, you're supposed to do it again and again as long as you both shall live and are able to. Communion is the oath sign for the church, right? We, we take the bread and we take the juice. And says, do this as often as you meet until I come. Right? It's, it's something that's to be repeated. We are reminding ourselves that we are one with Christ. So what is a marriage vow renewal, technically, scripturally? Well, every time you enjoy your partner in physical intimacy, you are renewing your vows. You are invoking God's accountable favor. See? 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tells us that married people are not to deprive one another. So, so this is what this means. <laughs> Here's the bad news. Well, it's, it's good news if you're in Christ. Sex prior to marriage undermines and devalues marriage and the act. And so sex prior to marriage is sinful. Uh, uh, yeah, prior to marriage is sinful. It's like saying that you can be joined to God and any other God too. You can't. Human sexual expression is sinful outside of marriage. Here's the good news. We are commanded in marriage to have sexual relationship with our spouse. And not only are we commanded to have it, but we are commanded to have it repeatedly. So let me be clear. If you're married... God tells us to not deprive our spouse of sexual relationship. That means it's sinful not to in marriage. And isn't it interesting about human nature? We just like sin in our flesh. So for some reason, if you're not married, you want it all the time from whoever. But when you are married, it's like, get away from me. Right? Because we're stubborn sinners. We resist God's goodwill. And we wonder why our marriages decline. Here's the third implication. God is present every single time, no matter who it's with. He is there. Because you are invoking him to be there. It's a creation ordinance. You are invoking his blessing for you to... For, for him to bless the union, that it would be permanent and lifelong. God is present. You remember what Adam said when he married Eve? This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Who is he talking to? Not Eve. He would have said, you are bone of my bones and flesh, right? He says, this is not now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Who is he talking to? He's talking to God. Because God is there. 
God is the one that put him to sleep. God is the one that created Adam. God is the one that joined them to in physical union to be spiritually united for the rest of their lives. So God, so Adam is invoking God's blessing. God is present. Remember, Adam is talking to God, and he's invoking God in this act, in this physical union with his wife. God is present, and he expects Adam to obey or keep the covenant he's making with Eve in that moment. The two shall become one. Number four, the oath, the covenant ratifying oath, union, physical union in marriage, has to be selfless. It has to be about more than you. If this is all true, it's not about you. It's about the other person, and it's about God. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and they became one flesh. It's not about me anymore. It's about my wife. This is why Paul tells us to love our wives more than our own bodies, because they are our body at that point. You never resent your own body, he says, when you bite your tongue. You don't smash your teeth, right? You're going to hurt another part of your body because one part of your body hurt another. You don't do that. You care for it. You're selfless. You forgive it. You forgive your teeth when it bites your tongue, right? You don't pull them out. You forgive them. What's the imagery here? If your wife is one with you, you forgive her like you would forgive yourself because you know that ultimately, if that marriage falls apart, you do too. Right? You say, well, it's her fault. Well, that's, that might be. It's his fault. Well, that might be so. You, you, know, you might have married someone that's awful. And, and that happens to people, and I get that. And sometimes the Bible even allows for divorce. But th- does it not still wreck you in the process? Of course it does. You might be less to blame for the situation, but it still wrecks you because you're one with the person. Like it or not, that's what happens. You see, sometimes amputation is really the only solution. You got gangrene in your foot, and there's nothing you can do about it, and that leg needs to go. But who wants to be there in life? Wouldn't it have been better for there not to be gangrene in your foot, right? We all know that it's not supposed to be like that. Now, you might have had to do that to live, and now you can move on with your life. You can be happy, right? You can have peace and whatnot because you've, you've dealt with the problem. But it's, it still cost you, didn't it? You see, friends, there is forgiveness, and there is hope, and there is redemption, no matter what we've done. But don't devalue marriage. Don't minimize the meaning and importance of our human sexual relationship with other people because there are prices to pay when we do. Now, if you've failed, you're forgiven, right? And let me tell you something right now. I'm a, I'm a failure. I've failed. And not only this, but many other things in life. If, I, if it weren't for the grace of God and the redemption of Christ, I'm not defined by my failure. I am new. I am a new creation. And my sin is gone away. 
and there is hope and a future for me. That's the, that's the Bible promise for those of you who are in Christ. But knowing that, don't step on your own foot because there's still a price to pay. God can offer you forgiveness, but that doesn't mean that we can just live flippantly, that when we step on a nail, it doesn't hurt anymore. Right? Trust in the forgiveness and the grace of Christ. He offers you a new day, but follow him. Love him. So begin this day. If you've never understood it like this before in the past, this is a new day. Begin this day with a high view of this, a high view of human sexual sexuality and a high view of marriage. An invocation of divine accountability to love and cherish a permanent union between man and wife. It's not, how are you doing? That's not what it means. It's not, hey, I like your hair. That's not what it means. It's an invocation of divine accountability to love and cherish a permanent union between a man and a wife, a husband and a wife. That's what it is. And it's really fantastic and very special and God-glorifying when you finally come to agree with that ordinance of creation. And let's not miss the bigger picture here. I mentioned this a little bit already. It's an example of God's union to his church. You want to be united to something? Well, let me introduce you to some, someone that's more beautiful than any woman you've ever met, more handsome than any man that you've ever met, more soul-satisfying than any romance you've encountered. You see, God in heaven wants to marry you. He wants union with you. But our brokenness because of our sin gets in the way, and he has to punish it because he's holy and good, but he also is love. So he who loved us sent his son to die for our sin in our place so that sin could be separated from us, so that we could be, Ephesians 5, washed and cleaned and presented to him, the bridegroom, without spot or wrinkle. Come and get it. Amen? Let's pray. God, you are good, and we love you.